Every time we celebrate the solemnity of the baptism of the Lord, I am reminded of this movie uh, called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's a Coen Brothers movie. And the plot of the movie, it's a comedy, but it's a parody with the Odyssey, you know, that, that ancient story. Um, and there are three main characters. There's Everett, who's played by George Clooney, and then two other criminals uh, who are uh, Pete and, um, oh, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, all right, Delmar. Delmar, Pete Delmar. How could we forget Delmar? So, uh, now, as these are criminals in, like, uh, early 20th century, early 1900s, and they're going through southern Mississippi. And as they're escaping the law, there's this one scene where they pass by this river, and there's some evangelicals uh, doing some baptisms in the river, and they hear them singing. And so Pete and Delmar go down to be baptized. And coming out of the waters of baptism, Everett, played by George Clooney again, remains skeptical, and he's kind of the leader of the whole gang. He gets into the car and says, well, you think that just because you've been absolved by the Lord doesn't mean you've been absolved by the state of Mississippi. And then they said to him, well, why don't you, why didn't you come down to the waters of baptism? And he said, I don't believe in a superstitious thing like that. And then he ends his rant by saying, by shaking his head and saying, baptism, you two are dumber than a bag of hammers. And uh, that's just a line that I'll never forget because I've always wanted to use that in a homily and now I'm using it. So, um, so I'll base the whole homily off it. But baptism, you two are dumber than a bag of hammers. So why is that significant? Well, again, because while this movie is a comedy, it is also a parody, um, like a, a re-representation re-representa- of the Odyssey. And so as these men are going along their journey, they happen upon this sacrament of baptism, this idea for hope um, and redemption. And Everett, who is looking at Pete and Delmar, who have just been baptized, knows very well that they are criminals. He knows that they'll probably just fall into the same shady behavior that they fell into, that they were falling into before. And that just because they stumbled upon these people singing these nice songs by this river, doesn't mean that they'll change at all. And so we have Everett who observes natural man. He observes him very well. And he has no reason to think that this kind of spell or this ritual will change him. And so we also can have that kind of skepticism toward ourselves and toward one another. That we see our own upbringing or the upbringing of someone else and say, that person has no hope of really changing say, like, look at, look at Pete. The problem with Pete is that he comes from a family of alcoholics. I can't expect Pete to be any different. He will just continue to do that. Why? Because that's his family of origin. That's his nature. You know, or perhaps you look at Lucy, you know. Lucy grows up in this family where, like, nobody in the family is responsible. Everybody shows up late. And so because of her nurture, she will always continue to do that. She will never change. And we get into this cycle where, especially today, more than anything, we explain away through a lot of different symptoms or syndromes more than ever, we explain away people's faults. And we explain away our own faults, whether it's through like syndromes or personality tests or, or whatever it might be. 
That we say, like, this is who I am, this is all who I will ever be. And so we limit ourselves from the possibility of transformation. And so that when we're faced with the opportunity to be a saint or to say, like, that person can be a saint, we think with Everett, like, come on, you got to be kidding me. you got to be dumber than a bag of hammers to think that that will work. Now, again, I want to go back to those categories of nature and nurture and to show that baptism really is real and that baptism can really get us out of this cycle to think that I'm determined by my parents or I'm determined by my environment. So nature. What, how does the Lord change our nature? So in celebrating the baptism of the Lord, we recognize Jesus does not need to be baptized. Jesus is the Son of God. So why does he go and be baptized? He goes to be baptized so that we can be baptized. That Christ comes into the River Jordan to make it clean, to make the waters of baptism clean. Now, about four years ago, me and some transitional deacons, as we were about to be ordained priests, we went to the Holy Land and we, we checked out the Jordan River. And it's very dirty. Jesus probably needs to step in it one more time because it's still very dirty. But it was also very dirty because there were Alabama fans there who were being like who were being baptized. Um, so add that on. But um, the idea was that the Jordan River kind of touched all the waters throughout the earth. And what Jesus has done is that him being the Son of God, the Word, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. When he takes on human flesh, he takes on a human nature. So the divine nature takes on a human nature. And then he steps into the water so that we can share that water to take on his divine nature. God swaps, in a sense, his nature for our nature. He becomes human so that we can become like him. He becomes like us so that we can become like him. This is what happens in baptism, that we swap the divine nature. We share his nature. We're not determined by um, our own, like we're not determined by Adam, we would say in the faith, right? We're not determined by Eve and by their sin. We're not determined by the sin of our parents or our first parents, but rather we now share the nature of God himself after being baptized. And that second part with nurture, what happens with nurturing, that we are then nurtured in the family of the church. If we are made sons of God, with whom he is well pleased, then we also have siblings in the Father, and that this relationship is the life of the church, and that we're nurtured through the church's liturgy, we're nurtured through the church's sacraments, we're nurtured through the penitential practices of the church, through the different seasons, uh, we're nurtured by the catechesis, of the church, all of this helps to form us and get us out of the cycle of Adam and Eve, out of the cycle of repeating the sin of our parents. So all of that to say is how does then baptism concretely look? And the reason why someone like Everett in O Brother Where Art Thou can say baptism, that's just superstition. You're dumber than a bag of hammers to believe in it. It's because we have lost, because we think only in terms of this like psychological nature versus nurture, we have lost the sense of the supernatural. And perhaps we don't even practice the faith in a supernatural way. 
Perhaps we come to Mass because it's the right thing to do. It's what responsible and refined people do. Perhaps we pray because it's a good mental exercise. It's a good way to remove myself from the phone. Perhaps we fast because we think it's a healthy thing. It's like a, a nice dietary thing. It's a way to abstain from the goods of this, thing so I can have to, uh, the goods of this world so I can have detachment. But still, the faith is lived in a very natural way, just a way of behaving better or to live a more naturally good life. But in order to restore faith in baptism and faith in conversion, we need to have a supernatural outlook toward the faith, a supernatural outlook toward baptism. And so there are three movements within this gospel from the three Trinitarian persons that I'd like to suggest to help us live the faith a little bit more supernaturally and not so uh, on the natural level. The first, from the person of Christ. After all the people had been baptized, and Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, he's in the water. That Jesus had been baptized, so he's in the water. Again, this being in the water in the river Jordan is this swapping from the human nature to the divine nature. That he shares our human nature so that we can share his divine nature. But if he is going to give us his divine nature, and then we must give our human nature and what is broken in our human nature. In other words, I swap my fallenness and my weakness for his divinity. Now, this happens ordinarily, this exchange, in confession. Why? Because I give my mortal sins so that I can have the divine life, which is charity which is the grace of charity, which is divine life itself, God's life within me, in the sacrament. So whenever that swapping happens, then that is how I receive divine life. Any person who walks out of the confessional and has confessed all their mortal sins with contrition and the desire to not sin again, receives the life of God, receives charity. Now that also happens in a more regular way just by daily examining being aware of our predominant fault, being aware of our weakness. If we do that, if we give the Lord that, then we are able to receive the divine life in much more abundance. And so that way, this swapping of our weakness for his grace allows us to live the faith more supernaturally. The second part is that after Jesus had been baptized and was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him. So now the divine person of the Holy Spirit tears open heaven. And so in baptism, when we are baptized, the human heart is torn open to receive the gifts, to receive the Holy Spirit, and to receive his gifts. Now, I think most of us, if we're being honest, probably don't know the names of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't know uh, what to call them, or even, or less so, what they do. Now, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, um, as Gergou Lagrange says, kind of like sails on a sailboat that dispose us to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that dispose us to respond to the promptings of God. Now, we've all been baptized, assumedly, and um, if we haven't baptized, then we have received the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Everyone has it, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, but perhaps... They are like gifts under the Christmas tree that we haven't opened. Like we possess them, but we don't really know 
what to do with them. We don't know how to respond to the Holy Spirit. And these gifts of the Holy Spirit are necessary, uh, Gary Lagrange says, for salvation. They are necessary for salvation. They're not optional. And the way that they're used, like imagine, like, like we're all aware of how far we personally are from God. You know, like as we come upon Lent, we realize like, yeah, I really need to go a long way if I'm going to be a saint. So imagine that like your soul is like a boat and it needs to cross the Atlantic. It would be very foolish of you to say, you know what? I've got these two oars. I've got this canoe. Let me just paddle across the Atlantic. No, because like the more effort that you exert, the more that you're just going to be burnt out and eventually you're not going to make it. And so this analogy of oars or a paddle is like the virtues, you know, our own human effort. We can exhaust all our hum- own human effort, but at the end of the day, it won't be enough. It's not enough just simply to, to fast and, uh, and to pray and uh, to alms give. Like, I, it's not, I cannot save myself, that God himself needs to save me. And so he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit because these gifts are like sails. That as the Holy Spirit, as we open ourselves to the Spirit, we allow himself to blow his breath. We call the Holy Spirit the breath of God, uh, in Hebrew, the ruah, the wind, to set us across that Atlantic Ocean, to to be near to the Lord. Now, what does this look like? Uh, One student who became a focused missionary was sharing with me a couple months ago. That is, he was on campus. He had watched a student walk out of the confessional and was walking out of uh, the church. He doesn't know him. He doesn't, like, he's never seen a guy before. But he just had this, like, movement within his heart. Say, I need to go talk to this guy. Without reason, without knowing anything about him, without knowing if this guy was going to be interrupted, where he was going to go, just had this prompting to go and talk to this man. So he goes to talk to the student, finds out this is the first time he's been in confession in years, the first time he's been in mass in a year. He has, he's new to the school. He doesn't really know anybody. And so after that, then he invites him like to continue the conversation. And sure enough, it's that prompting of the Holy Spirit that brings that man into deeper life of the church. If he doesn't respond to that prompting, it doesn't happen. And so promptings of the Holy Spirit are necessary for our own sanctification and for the good of the church. That we can't just live our life um, outside listening to the promptings of the Spirit. Now the third person... Uh, the third Trinitarian person is the Father. And after the Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove, a voice comes from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If we desire to live the faith in a supernatural way and to allow real conversion, then it cannot be without meditative prayer. It cannot be without meditative prayer spent in time with the Lord. It doesn't mean that like a prayer life is sufficient then if I just pray in our Father, Hail Mary, and glory be before I go to sleep at night. I need to spend time with the one who says to me in my baptism, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. If we do not do that, then we won't have the nurture that's necessary for sanctification. Then we won't allow ourselves to be sunned by God himself. And we will be destined to the sin and the cycle of sin of our first parents. This only happens in meditative prayer 
that I should devote myself to for at least 20 minutes a day, if not 30 minutes, if not an hour, just to expose myself to the love of the Father so that I can be transformed inwardly to become the new man, uh, the new man being Christ himself and not the old man, which is Adam. And so we ask that the Lord can give us a true renewed faith in the sacrament of baptism. That while we've all received the gift, perhaps we've left it under the tree, so to speak. We have not yet opened it. That through the constant swapping of my weakness for his grace, through responding to the promptings of his spirit, and by listening to his Father in prayer, that we can be sanctified inwardly, that people can look at the witness of our lives and not say baptism. You must be dumber than a bag of hammers.